Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today we dive into the world of a leather man who's been involved in the scene for almost 40 years. A holder of multiple leather titles, today's guest takes us through their journey across several generations and recollects some of their most memorable experiences. Later on, we get into some hot topics, including fisting and breath play. Get ready for some more Leather Talk. everybody, this is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Rod. Uh, Rod, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Hi, I'm Rod Wood. Uh, I was Northern California Mr. Drummer in 2000, and before that, uh, Russian River Drummer, Russian River Leather Daddy in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1991, and I was on the uh, Gauntlet calendar in L.A. in 1989. Well, awesome. So you've been around for a while. How many years would you say? Probably around uh, since around 1980. So we're looking at about 40 years. Wow. And Rod, uh, would you mind letting us know your uh, gender pronouns and your sexual orientation? Okay. I am uh, biologically male, uh, gay, and a leather man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, Rod, we actually met over... um, Facebook, as people do these days in quarantine. <laughs> yeah, I think we had a mutual friend. Right, right. Good. Facebook's good at uh, stalking people's pages and connecting them. <laughs> um, but what I thought was so intriguing was uh, when we kind of started getting to talk, and and you showed me like pictures of yourself from like back in like the eighties and. In, in your leather, you know, part of why I'm doing this podcast is really to hear the voices from across the generations. And I think, I don't know if we've had too many people from your generation share their story here. So I thought that was really important for us to hear. Well, thank you. So I, let's get right into it then. Um, let's talk a little bit about your titles. You have multiple titles, is that correct? Uh, yeah, but usually uh, one goes with the, sort of the highest of the of the group. Okay. <laughs> so that's why I just said Northern California drummer. All right. Awesome. Well, what was your first title? My first sort of title was being on the, the calendar of the Gauntlet 2, which is now the Eagle. Okay. Um, in Los Angeles. In, in Los Angeles. And then in 1991, the summer after my partner John and I moved up there, I uh, was selected as Russian River Leather Daddy 91. And then in 2000, I ran for the uh, drummer title. So I won Russian River Mr. Drummer. And then that went on to competing for Northern California Mr. Drummer, which I won there. And then competed for International Mr. Drummer. But I did not be- become international title holder. Okay. Okay. Well, what? how old were you when you first ran for the calendar? Let's see, that was in 89, so I would have been um, 35. Wow. What made you want to run for that in the first place? Uh, I was dating a guy who wanted to run for the calendar. We thought maybe it'd be fun to to run together. He was my leather boy, and he thought it'd be great to get the the June slot. 
the two of us, you know, dad and dad's boy. Cute. So we, we both ran, but uh, they ended up splitting the two of us up. He ended up being on the front cover, and I just, I ended up being Mr. May. Okay. Well, are these like nude photos, or are they like all in leather? Uh, it, it was kind of all over the place. There, there were no nude photos. Okay. Um, I was in a police uniform, a San Francisco police uniform, and he was sort of scantily clad in leather, sort of perched on a motorcycle. That sounds hot. <laughs> So was that your kind of first taste at like a leather competition? Is that kind of the reason why you wanted more? What's the reason why you kept going in, in winning competitions? Well, that was, you know, it's always been more of a thing to do for fun or to allow me to have a soapbox, if you will, to do things with. So the, that one was for fun. You know, I didn't, didn't get anything out of it other than I, I think I got a free calendar. <laughs> and um the Russian River Leather Daddy title was that came about because a friend of ours who lived at the river was supposed to compete for that title, but something came up and he was not going to be able to compete. And his boy was uh, running for Russian River Leather Daddy's boy. <clears throat> so he asked me if I would be willing to take his boy up on stage on a chain as if he was my boy. And I was a little hesitant to do it, but I checked with John, my partner at the time, and said, oh, I guess so. That's all you're going to do. I said, fine. So I showed up with my leather gear. At the, it was at the R3 in Guerneville, Russian River Resort. And of course, summertime, so it was kind of warm. So I told him at the, the front gate, you know, why I was there. And the guy that was, you know, signing people in for the contest, he said, well, we've only got like one other contestant. He says, you want to run for the contest? I said, I don't know. And well, it turns out it was somebody I had tricked with quite some time before. Okay. And and he was the he was the current international drummer boy. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, John Syracuse. He was actually the first of them. So I said, "Well, what the heck? I got the gear here." So I did, and it ended up I won. <laughs> so you started off as a filler because they didn't have enough contestants, and then you ended up winning. <laughs> Well, I started off as just, you know, helping a friend out, really. Right, uh, right. And then, you know, what ended up happening was I ended up competing and winning. So, yeah, it was... That's so funny. Well, what about the Mr. Drummer title, 2000? Was that more intentional or... Well, it was a little more intentional. But again, it was one of those things that um, the the Russian River Eagle Bar was my favorite bar in town. It was the leather bar there. And I, I happened to drop in one afternoon and saw uh, Jake, the owner. And he said, you want to run for drummer? And I said, I don't know that I could really do that. And I said, you know, I've, I've admired these drummer men for years. But he says, oh, no. You know, you, he says, I think you can do great on this. So I said, well, what do I need to do? And he told me, he said, you know, you're going to have to show up a certain time with your gear. You know, it's, it's uh, four parts to it. There's an interview. There's on stage in full leather. There's on stage uh, in like a jock strap, the hot wares they call it. You know, some jokingly referred to it as the swimsuit competition. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a, a fantasy, an on stage sexual fantasy, not real sex, but simulated. What was your fantasy? Um, mine had to do with a priest, a leather boy, and a confessional. Mm. Well, I grew up Catholic, so I can already imagine how that one played out. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, he told me about that. And this was like 
three in the afternoon. So he said, be here, you know, back here at six. So I rushed home and um, got a couple of pieces of wood and tacked them together to make myself a confessional to take back there to, to set up. It was basically just a couple of arches that I created. So it wasn't anything really fancy, but just the idea of having something more than just two people standing here. Right, right. And I competed there and ended up winning that contest and then went on to the Northern California contest a couple of months later. That's so awesome. Well, I'm wondering, I wonder if, has the meaning behind getting a, a title for you changed at all over the years? Or has it always kind of been like a thing that you just, it's part of what you do? Well, you know, obviously having not done any since, you know, 2000, it's not one of those things I feel like, well, I need to compete, you know, again and again and again. Uh, some guys are like that, and that's fine, I guess. I, I do think it's a shame when somebody competes one year and they decide to compete again the next year and the next year and the next year immediately. I think that they really should wait a year and see, you know, see how they develop themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've known some guys who in San Francisco, for instance, they competed and got a slot on the bare chest calendar and then they competed for international Mr. Leather. Well, they really can't do either job very well because the calendar requires a certain amount of a person's time because they want you to travel other places like Palm Springs or Sacramento or, you know, across country even sometimes. And if you're doing that, you're not really going to be representing your area as a Mr. Leather contestant. So it's pretty much impossible to do both. Uh, You know, it's okay to have done one and then wait a year and do the next for that. But there's also guys that, you know, they're up there on stage like every year. So I guess, you know, if you're going to take the job seriously, make sure you have the time to fulfill all of the, uh, you know, responsibilities is kind of what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. And, uh, you know, when I, when I did the drummer contest, it, well, actually when I did the Russian River Leather Daddy contest, I figured that would also be a good opportunity for me to be sort of PR for the river, mm. going to San Francisco and go to events and be there and, you know, have my Russian River Leather Daddy vest on. So people would come up to me and say, oh, tell me about the river. And I would be basically a spokesperson for the Russian River. Yeah, that's pretty much how leather titles started from what I understand, right? To kind of be like a walking advertisement for the bar. A lot of it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Way back back when. So, you know, I, I took that job kind of seriously and sort of with the idea that, you know, come up to the river and we'll try to find you a lumberjack who will fuck your brains out. Nice. <laughs> did you have little business cards? <laughs> Actually, I did make business cards later, yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so cute. <laughs> I'll have to get a copy of one of those if you still have one laying around. Oh, I think so. Well, uh, if you were to run for another title today, uh, do you know what that one would be? Oh, uh, you know, being here in Palm Springs, I don't know that I'd really have anything that I'd be wanting to run for. Mm-hmm. Um there's, you know, drummer turned into international leather, sir and leather boy. There's a whole story about why that happened. But uh, basically, the contest is still around. You do have the feeders for the IML contestants here in, in uh, Palm Springs. 
I've been to the contest a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that I am the sort of guy they're looking for. They're generally looking for someone significantly younger than me, usually like half my age. And that's not anything bad. It's just quite often they end up with somebody who is their biggest asset is that they're pretty. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've heard that sentiment before. Um, and I, I think that might be changing in some ways, but do, do you see a lot of daddies up there competing for competitions in the first place? Not really too much. No, uh, there, there's a few, but you know, there, there gets to be sort of an age that you reach and you kind of go, it's time for me to let the youngins, you know, do their thing. And I'm, you know, I'm at that age pretty much. Okay. Well, since you kind of mentioned the, um, you know, the youngins, as you say, <laughs> uh, I do want and to. I, and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying right. you know, we, we had our chance to try to improve the world and we're still here. You know, we're happy to try to help, but, you know, it's, it's not, um, not necessarily our, our show to run anymore. Well, I, you know, I appreciate, you know, you willing to kind of hand off the baton. You know, I did want to ask you kind of a little bit about the gap between the generations, because I, I've always kind of had a fascination to, you know, well, one, I'm kind of a daddy's boy, but two, like, I just love talking to older people who have been around in the community longer, because I just want to know what it was like back then, you know, and, and how it's changed. And, uh, one of the things that I've encountered is older people being like, oh, well, back in the day, it used to be like this, this, and this. Back in the day, you know, leather title holders used to have this experience or that experience already. And like, you know, kind of without without saying it in so many words, you get the the concept of like, you're significantly lesser than because you didn't come from this era. And you, these are all the things that you don't know that you haven't experienced. And I'm sitting here in my spot thinking, well, it's not my fault that I grew up in a time where we have <laughs> cell phones or where we engage with each other differently than, you know, you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Like, what are some big differences that you see between the generations, like how we engage now today versus how when you first came into the leather scene? Well, I think that there was a lot more face-to-face interaction you got laid by going out to the bars or going to a public place, you know, whether that was a bar or the park or, you know, a restaurant where you knew there were other gay people in significant numbers um, or the alleyway, like I described you know, <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning when the people that you weren't going to go home with otherwise or, you know, going around and around trying to get laid. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot more online stuff, even, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, some of that was happening in for men and there were some other apps that were out there. And I kind of like looked at it as being like ordering pizza. You know, you got online, you saw what somebody's profile said they did, had or wanted, and you'd, you'd basically send them a message and make a connection and they would come over or you would go over to their place. I guess that's fine if that's, you know, if all you're looking for is a big dick or you're looking for a tight ass or some specific thing, it's a quick way to get that. There was a lot of party and play, you know, drug stuff through that. Um, mm-hmm. I tried it a couple of times, not the party and play, but the tried the app. Uh, one turned out to be okay. And one, the guy was just psycho. And you, you don't know that by being on an app. Same thing would be true 
see something like uh, grinder or scruff. Right. You you get a, a certain energy and a body language communication that you won't get on an app. Exactly. So that was a I think a big advantage of going out is that you know you find somebody you you think's cute, you find interesting, and you go over and you talk to them and you find out oh okay we've got some common interests or you find out okay this one's wacko. <laughs> Uh, and then you realize, oh, you know what? I think I left my stove on at home. I got to go. Bye. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what that excuse is. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. What, so which one am I? Am I the wacko or the... <laughs> oh, no, I don't think you're wacko at all. I think you're, uh, you know, you're a young man who's curious. I would love to meet you at some point in person because it's been fun talking with you, you know, either chatting with you online or you know, chatting with you through... You know, this sort of medium. But again, you don't know. You may have a nervous tick that I don't see here. Yeah, that's true. That, that could happen. Um, you know, it's so funny because one of the things that um, <clears throat> when I first started dating my, my partner now of, of five plus years, one of the things that he wanted to do was to talk on the phone. And he, he messaged on Grinder, and he's like, well, I know you guys, you know, your generation, you don't really like to talk on the phone. And I was like, Oh, we could talk on the phone, but it, it, it's kind of true. Like, I don't really use my phone to talk to people, <laughs> like with my voice, at least. I, I mostly do. So, you know, for me, that's I, I get more inflection from their voice about what's going on. So if I say something and I get this, oh, yeah, kind of answer back, I go, oh, maybe this wasn't the right thing to say. Right. Well, speaking of phones, what do you what do you say to the guys that go to the bar and they pull out their phone? <laughs> I usually don't say anything to them because they're too busy on the phone. I, I don't quite understand the idea of being on your phone looking for a date when you're in a bar surrounded by people of your of your same uh, orientation and, and possibly likes and dislikes. And particularly, there's certain areas of certain bars that are generally dark for a reason. And somebody pulling out their phone and lighting up the room is not necessarily the, the best thing to have happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I kind of think just put the phone away and tell people that, you know, if you need to use your phone, go outside. But if they're busy on their phone, chances are I wouldn't have been talking with them anyway. Well, you know, to, to those of us who are barely turning 21 or, you know, we're, we're kind of just getting out into the bar scene, what would be your advice to us younger generation going out to engage with the leather community? Take a friend. You know, if, if it's sort of your first time out in the leather bars, find somebody who you know that you can trust, not necessarily a, somebody you would have sex with, but somebody that you trust and take, you know, ask, oh, you know, I know that you go to the Eagle or I know that you go to, you know, some other bar that's known to be a leather bar. And you mind if I tag along one night? And they may be a little hesitant about it, but, you know, if they're a friend, they'll say, sure, come along. Uh, if I disappear, you know, this is probably what I'm doing and I'll, you know, I won't leave you stranded. Mm -hmm. And you do the same. You know, if you see somebody interesting, don't take off without me. Because although most people you you find just like at any bar or fine, you know, there are some people out there that are less so, or they may have certain proclivities that you might find to be a little much uh, your first time out. 
Right, right. It's always good to have a backup, you know, to be like, oh, my friend's waiting for me. <laughs> yeah, or, or it's like going to a new city when you go on a, on a vacation or, or go on business. You know, you go to a new city having a friend in that city who can tell you what's good and definitely what isn't is a really big plus. Mm -hmm. So you're not just sort of going, okay, where am I going? Why am I going here? You, you kind of know, okay, well, this is a good place to go. These are good people to be with. Here's a jerk that you don't want to be around. Well, what about you? What was your first experience like in the leather bar? And do you remember like where it was and, and how you felt and what you did? Oh, let's see. I'm trying to think. <laughs> a long time ago. Um, I think my first experience was the uh, the gauntlet. Hmm. And I actually went by myself. Okay. Uh, I knew I knew people that had gone there, but that was not... I had not asked any of them to, you know, go with me. So I went in and uh, really didn't do anything the first time. So it was more to kind of see what was going on. So you were an observer at that time. Right, right. Now, did you have to wear a piece of gear to get in? Uh, it wasn't a requirement, but uh, it was a suggestion. Okay. Uh, oh, one of the things that I do remember some people would do way back then and I know others would be having fits about it, but you would see guys in leather jackets and tennis shoes. Now, there are purists now who would just have an absolute conniption fit if they saw you in a leather jacket and tennis shoes or a leather vest and tennis shoes. And while it's not necessarily proper attire, I can understand that, you know, leather is not a cheap fetish. Right. So the fact that you've started to make an effort means that you have some interest and maybe you don't have the funds to get the leather vest and the leather jacket and the chaps and the boots and, you know, the whole thing. But, you know, that could come a time, especially if you're younger. You know, you, you may not be a doctor or a lawyer that can say, oh, yeah, I can blow $10,000 on all this gear. Right. Well, just the boots. If you, if you really want, like, great boots, there's... You can spend hundreds of dollars like just on boots. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I have these like, uh, they're Pumas, they're tennis shoes. And I, I know some people are cringing right now. Oh, Mr. Bullet Leather is wearing tennis shoes. No. Well, I didn't have the funds at that point to buy boots, but I had these leather looking shoes that I would put my pants over. And um, like nobody really gave me any flag for it. And I think part of the reason was is because it kind of did look like boots. Like if you were just glancing at them. But if you looked closer, you would realize they were sneakers. <laughs> I just put the laces in. Uh, but then finally when I got boots, it, it was so – it was super special to me. So, you know, I guess it's better to go into a bar with some kind of leather than none at all if you're trying. Right. Well, you know, um, I remember one time when – Roger and I were at a, a bar in San Francisco called Chaps 2. Uh, it was a leather bar. It was really, actually, I, we really had a good time there usually. And they had a back area and they had a front area. And we were there one night, and I think it was one of those underwear nights or something. And we saw a couple of young guys coming in, and they weren't in leather, but they, you know, obviously they were curious enough. And it wasn't like they walked in and saw what was going on and ran out. Right. So Roger complained, well, he's in tennis shoes. And I said, well, you know, it could be his first time. And you don't want to scare them off their first time. So 
I walked over and chatted with him and I said, well, you know, I see you're not wearing any leather. I said, you know, that means you're going to have to take your shirt off. <laughs> well, he willingly took his shirt off. You know, so it was fine. That's one way to engage new people, you know. Right. It, it was, okay, show me that you're willing to kind of go a little extra step to show that you, you, know, you have a willingness to be here and not just sort of ran in and then running back out. So, you know, he spent the rest of the night with his shirt off. And I took mine off later too, but... Um, it was it was a way to break the ice and make him feel like he wasn't completely out of place and yet like well you know it's it's not exactly a dress code but you know next time if you can try to wear a little bit of leather with you you know i think that's really important what you say when you what you just said about that you went up to engage someone um i think the first time i well really my first leather bar was the the bullet that's um I actually didn't realize that the bullet was, you know, quote unquote, a leather bar until a while. But uh, there was one like leather night that they had at the Eagle here, uh, which would be the same bar, I guess, you know, that you're speaking of. Um, and I remember going in there in my like skinny jeans and like a polo shirt and thinking, oh, my God, like, this is so fucking crazy. And I would not have had the courage to take my shirt off unless someone had come up to me like you and said hey like why don't you take your shirt off like I would feel out of place because I don't know anybody there so like the fact that you went up and encouraged this person to sort of like you know engage in that way uh, I think is a real testament to like you bringing people into the community well I think that's also one of those things that I talked about you know as far as the title holder I think that's really part of their job uh, is, you know, I, I do see some title holders that they've won their title and now the only people they will talk to are other title holders. Mm. And I don't think that's really, I don't think it's right. I'll put it that way. I think their, their job, whether they like it or not, is they do represent the community. Right. So they need to be out there and encouraging people to be part of the community and not just, oh, you know, you I'm part of a clique and you aren't na 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 na. You know, I I I still do that even though I'm not a current title holder of any sort. I'll, if I'm out, say with a and we see some friends and say one of them sees somebody he thinks is hot, but he's a little shy, I will walk over to the person and introduce myself and chat with them for a minute or two and say, by the way, my friend over here thinks you're really hot. You want to come meet him? <laughs> and I'll you know, drag them over and introduce them. And, you know, if something happens, great. Well, if it doesn't, well, that's fine too. But at least, you know, it sort of breaks the ice for the two of them. Because the, the guy may say, well, yeah, I think he's hot too. But I, you know, just didn't want to go over and break up whatever he was doing. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you about being a title holder. Have you ever had the experience of going up to somebody like that and then them kind of being, you know, a dick to you <laughs> and without realizing that you're like the title holder of the Russian river, which is the bar that they're at. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you handle that? Uh, graciously generally. <laughs> um, more problem of people who are really drunk, mm. drunk or stoned or something, usually drunk that they can be assholes and you, you kind of have to distance yourself from them. But yeah, back to your question about uh, about that. 
when Roger was Northern California Leather Boy, which is you know, what the Drummer Boy title became. Mm-hmm. 2003, there was a for Folsom weekend, there was a meet and greet in one of the bars. And because Folsom is such a big deal in the community, uh, a lot of people were in from out of town, including people who were going to be competing with Roger for the international title. Mm. So their pictures were on the web, and I you know, looked to see who, who these people were going to be in case we ran into them. Well, I saw one of them, and I went over and introduced myself and said hi. I did not say that, you know, I was drummer. I just introduced myself as if I was a normal person. Yeah. A regular person, yeah. Uh, and he really blew me off. You know, it wasn't even a polite, uh, excuse me, I need to, you know, go over here and do something. It was just, you know, basically turned around and walked away. Wow. And Roger was out, you know, he was out schmoozing with people as well. But uh, a few minutes later, he comes walking over with this guy who he knew had, was going to be one of his competitors and, you know, introduces the guy to me. And the guy asked, well, acted like I was, you know, his person. long lost buddy. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you are such an asshole. Yeah. You know, five minutes ago, you could care less who I was. But now that you know I'm the partner of one of your competitors, you're treating me so nice. And it, it really disappointed me that somebody would act that way. Yeah, that's it's really funny because a lot of people could make that mistake of just like one, just not even doing their research, but two, just like being a decent human being. Like I remember walking in because I'm a violinist. I walked into a session one time at the recording session and like some of the other orchestra members who had no idea who I was were just like, oh, like who's this guy? Like you get this kind of attitude sometimes in the orchestra. And then I sit down in my chair and the conductor introduces me as the concertmaster. And you could see all those people's faces that were giving me the stink eye before. They're like, oh, <laughs> oh he's the concertmaster. Okay. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, like, fuck you. <laughs> so don't worry, I took your names. Right, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, um, so as a title holder, I guess your your advice to other title holders is, is to you know, be welcoming to other people in the community and get people engaged rather than think about whether or not they're wearing the right shoes. <laughs> right. Get get people engaged, you know, and and being, whether you like it or not, you're going to be representing your community. Mm-hmm. So talk to people. It doesn't have to be somebody else who's in your clique. If people have questions and, you know, there may be people who know more about particular fetishes than you do. But if somebody asks you a question about something, uh, offer what advice or information you can, or if you say, you know, I really don't know a lot about that, but I do know somebody that does, and they're right over here. Let me introduce you to them. Or if they're not, say, you know, if you want to give me your card uh, or write down your your name and how to contact you, I will see if I can get somebody who knows more about that to contact you and talk to you about it. Right. Right. Well, I mean, speaking of kinks and fetishes, uh, what are some of your kinks and fetishes? Uh, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> what color is that? What color hinky is that one? <laughs> you know, I don't transparent. I think I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it kind it it depends upon the individual that I'm with. Okay. So um, I certainly have a lot of that daddy thing going on and there's a lot of boys out there that 
like that's the first thing they see is you know they, they give me the nickname Ooh Daddy, uh, <laughs> and that's fine, you know, and I, I don't have any problem about that. I guess one of the the primary oddities about me is that me and my husband boy are monogamous. Mm-hmm. I think I've mentioned that before, and I've certainly had people that have told me, well, you can't be a real leather man because you're monogamous. Uh, you can, and I certainly know other people who are definitely leather men who are, and a couple of leather women who also are monogamous. It's uh, it's fairly rare, but it does happen, and everybody has their own reason for having it. And I can go into that a little bit more later, but that's that's probably the primary thing. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be picking your brain a little bit more about um, the whole monogamy thing because that's I think that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But yeah, so so back to fisting. Uh, but <laughs> you are into fisting, right? Fisting. I, and I, 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 I certainly have been known to do it. As a matter of fact, that first boy that I went home with, that's the one who you know sort of eased me into fisting him. Okay. Never done it before. <laughs> um, you know, the fan dancer who worked at the at the diner. Wow. Anyway, uh, yeah. So that's that's part of it. Um, love to fuck and I, apparently I'm pretty good at it <laughs> I, I love to kiss and I can make somebody faint while kissing them that's always fun to do because they just they they kind of drop and I have to make sure I'm holding on to them otherwise they hit the floor <laughs> um, so what's the secret behind that oh well that's that's my secret everybody <laughs> knew I wouldn't be unique would I <laughs> You're right. You're right. Uh, let's see. What are the things? A little bit of bondage. I'm not really great at it. I'm, uh, you know, I know guys that are definitely far better at it than I am. Mm-hmm. Flogging, same thing. That you know, I I can certainly do it. I will not try to handle a single tail. You know, whip. Uh, I had one when I was a kid, and I was never good at it. And I thought, I don't want to hurt somebody really bad unintentionally. So I I just keep away from that. And if I see somebody slinging a whip, I give them a wide berth. I do not want to get near it because I know, you know, one wrong move and one could lose an eye or, you know, get some real damage done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a I had a boyfriend when I lived in L.A. He lived in Long Beach. He was into breath control. Mm-hmm. And I could choke him and he would come just as he was passing out. Nice. Which was one of the most amazing things to watch. He wouldn't even be touching his dick. Wait, like, were you even touching his dick, or he was literally just no, coming neither, from suffocating? No, he, he would just come from being suffocated, basically. Oh my God. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. It was it was amazing to see, which, interestingly enough, happens with uh, praying mantis. Oh. oh. You probably didn't know that. No. Um, the female praying mantis, well, the male has to sneak up on the female uh, because she will treat him as any other insect and grab him and eat him. Oh, my God. So he has to sneak up behind her and jump on her and start trying to copulate. Well, I found out in biology class back in high school that um, unlike most animals where the brain starts the orgasm, in the praying mantis, the brain keeps the orgasm from happening. So he hops on top of her, she turns around, bites his head off, and he comes. Oh, my God. (laughs) How brutal. (laughs) Sounds non-consensual, Prey Man. Uh, yeah, yeah it kind of is. So, 
that's it. You know, she 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 gets impregnated by him, and then she eats him. Wow, how grotesque. Okay, well, okay. Short of getting your head bitten off, Rod, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would be like one of your greatest fantasies? I mean, either that you have lived out, or maybe you haven't lived out this fantasy. Like, what is your your golden night? Like, what is your um, your best night out for for a kink session? Oh, you know, it's, I don't really know what my ultimate fantasy would be. You know, I've had some pretty great nights. I've had nights when I've come seven or more times in a night by fucking someone. I've had sex on a road. I've had sex in a sling. I've had my arm up somebody's ass past my elbow. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. A guy in L.A. that I met at the fault line. Nice. How does it feel to have your arm that far up someone? It's a little scary Mm -hmm. because you realize your insides are much gentler than your outsides are. So you have to be really careful. Take it slowly. You have to be with somebody who has some experience. And, you know, you have to realize what the shape of the intestines are. And I was basically, you know, up there with my hand against his heart. So I could feel his heartbeat. Wow, I can't even imagine. That makes me nervous right now. It's like thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it made me a little nervous too, but that was that was pretty amazing. Um So are you having to like find all the twists and turns like through his intestine? Yeah. Wow. I mean, you you get out an, an anatomy chart and you see, you know, where it goes. And you have to be very careful about where you, you know where you're going and some idea of what you're doing. Something I would not suggest doing either with somebody who's inexperienced or trying to do your very first time. Right. Uh, this was this was after quite a few years of playing that way that uh, I was able to find somebody who could go that far. Usually, it's barely past the wrist. Right. Well, how long does it take to get your arm up that far? Um, we were probably playing thirty to forty-five minutes. That's pretty quick. I, you know, he he was he was ready for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't the first one who'd done it. Right, right. But, you know, when I was single and going out and going home with men, it was, you know, one of the things I really love doing is making my partner come. Mm-hmm. Just you know, driving in sort of the edge. And when I know they're just about to shoot, sort of stopping, just stopping mm-hmm. so that they don't. So they've got a chance to calm back down a little bit and... You know, then start back up slowly again and then build back up and then stop and build back up and stop until I'm ready for them to come. So this is sort of like a nonverbal control of, of their coming. Yeah. Or the other thing would be to make them come fairly quickly, but keep in there and make them come multiple times. How long is a good fuck session for you? Well... Depends on what we're doing and whether they're coming or not. Uh-huh. I've I've had fuck sessions that basically were all night long, you know, from like ten something at night until almost six in the morning. And do you take snack breaks, or are you just like sweating that whole time? Uh, you, you generally have like a bottle of water nearby. All right. You know that's that's really unusual, and you know again that's an age thing. Coming multiple times in a night is not something. That happens as uh, as easily when one gets older, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you know that's the way it is. 
So, you know, you said earlier you'd come up to like seven times. So maybe now you're thinking more like three or four times. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> uh, eight, eight was actually the record. Oh, damn. Wow. I, I think I've only come that many times in one day from masturbating, you know, and that was when I was like in high school. This was actually in a bathhouse in San Francisco. I was living in L.A. I went up to San Francisco for, you know, a weekend met some guy in a bar. We couldn't go back to where I was staying because I was staying at friends. For some reason, we couldn't go back to where he was staying. And we went to a bathhouse that was multiple stories. And we ended up in a room there. And he tied up my dick and balls with a leather thong. And we went to it for hours. When was this? This would have been early 80s. Okay. So question about the, this whole the bathhouse situation. Were you... Uh, if, if this is too personal of a, of a question, you don't have to answer, but are, were you wearing a condom? I, I probably was. Okay. Because uh, this you know, is now like the, the heat of the AIDS crisis, right? Yeah, this was early AIDS crisis. Okay. Uh, this, uh, this actually may have been slightly before, actually come to think of it, it probably was, slightly before we knew how AIDS happened. In other words, it was still... You know, the gay cancer, oh, you get it from poppers or something like that. Or, you know, because the drugs you're taking. So were you afraid at all when hooking up with guys you didn't know at this point? Or were you just kind of like, well, like, whatever. <laughs> like, you well, know. In, the, in the very early 80s, when it's all sorts, you know, when the first diagnoses of, of this, uh, I think they call it gay-related immunodeficiency grid, mm -hmm. um, we didn't know, you know, what was causing it. There were there was speculation. Like I said, people thought, well, you know, all these guys do poppers, and so it's the amyl of butyl nitrate that's causing it. So, you know, there was some fear because everybody did amyl nitrate. And um, then they found out, well, you know, there's people that don't do poppers that are getting it. Well, how's, you know, what's the reason for them getting it? And there's you know, no, there was no way of knowing what it was until the French figured out, oh, well, it's from a virus. And once they figured out it was a virus, then the idea of using a condom became prevalent. Well, the condom is going to keep, you know, it's going to keep the virus out. Wow. And you were asking earlier about, you know, difference between then and now. And that was one of the things that, you know, once we figured out that it was because of a virus and people were getting AIDS, I felt so bad for the, the younger generation for years that, you know, they would never know, at least we didn't think at the time, that they would never know what it was like to have, you know, a dick up your ass without a condom on. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I just, I felt bad for the next generation. I thought, you know, I had a great time doing all this stuff, but. You guys aren't going to be able to do that. And then, you know, we got PrEP in the last few years. And so a lot of people are saying, well, now that we've got PrEP, I'm protected against HIV, so I don't really have to use a condom anymore. Right. I mean, so I, I wonder if, because I, I guess I kind of had the same questions in my mind, you know, as I was coming out gay, I'm like, I wonder if I'll ever know what it was like before HIV. Do you remember what the dynamic was in the in the gay culture at that time? It must have felt like so free and liberating just to kind of go around and just fuck. You're not going to get anybody pregnant. I mean, like, 
the worst that you can possibly get is maybe, you know, the clap, the clap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was that like? Uh, you're right. It was, it was very, very freeing. You didn't have a problem about, Oh gee, you're cute. You want to go fuck? Oh, sure. You know, and you did. And that was kind of it. Maybe you decided, Hey, they were pretty good. You know, maybe we should try it a second or third time or mm-hmm. start dating, but you, you didn't worry too much about it. Again, like you said, the thing you worried about was getting the clap or maybe something like uh, Giardia or something like that. But those also had, you know, cures for those as well. So, but those weren't life-threatening illnesses. Right. Now, do you think that we're approaching kind of a similar environment, you know, with PrEP being on the forefront of HIV prevention? I think that, th- that a lot of people are saying now that we have PrEP, we can do anything we want again. Uh, I certainly have friends that are on PrEP and they're back to being pretty much like they were in the pre-AIDS era in the mm-hmm. late 70s, early 80s, very early 80s. And what do you think about that? Do you think that we are at that point again where people can start feeling that way? Or I, you know, I'm not an expert at it, so I'm, I would hate to say yes, but I certainly think that uh, a lot of people would say yes, mm-hmm. that we are. Um, it's certainly very different than it was, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, where you really had to be careful about what you did. You know, blowjobs were considered safe. Fisting with a glove of some sort was considered safe. Fucking with a condom was considered safe. But anal sex was not considered a safe thing to do unless you had a condom. Now, I, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I am genuinely curious because I have heard from, you know, older people in the past that that's when they decided to kind of lock it down with one person. And I wonder if deciding to engage in a monogamous relationship had anything to do with the the spreading of HIV or are, are you just wired more as someone who gets more out of being in a monogamous relationship? I, I think I'm wired a little more at this point in my life okay. uh, to that. You know, I certainly was not monogamous earlier on in my life. There was one point when I was, I had three boyfriends. <laughs> you none of, whom, <laughs> none of whom knew about the others. Oh my gosh, you bad boy. <laughs> it, uh, there was one night that it certainly proved very interesting because the, uh, the, the one that could, that could come by being choked wanted to go out. And I had a date with someone else who, as it turns out, had uh, worked at the Gold Coast. And uh, uh, Don was the, the name of the one that I had been dating. And Scott was the, was the new guy. Anyway, Don wanted to go out and I, I uh, lied to him and I said, oh, you know, I'm not feeling very good. Um, I think I'm just going to stay in because he lived, he lived in Long Beach. Don did. Mm-hmm. It was kind of tr- quite a trick to come up to the West Hollywood area. And I said, you know, I think you better. He says, well, I'll come up and take care. I said, no, I don't want you to catch this. So uh, I thought that was all well and good. And so I was starting to get dressed for my date with the other guy. Uh, with Scott, and uh, anyway, I'm I'm getting dressed, and I just happen to look out the window. I was on the second floor, and I see, yeah, I see Don's uh, van pull up, and oh fuck! <laughs> so of course, I took my pants off and uh, put on a robe and went downstairs and met him at the front door, and 
he'd brought me balloons and flowers, you know, get well. And I uh, said, uh, you know, I don't want to stay here at the door because I don't want you to catch this. And, you know, got him, got him away from there just as quickly as possible. And I see him go out, you know, I went back upstairs and watched out the window. I see him get in his, his van and start up and he starts to pull out as a, as a car is pulling up and took up the parking space that he vacated. Oh my God. Yes. yes. <laughs> that was the other date. Wow. Rod, you were a player. <laughs> it's like, you know, 30 seconds difference. And I mean, literally, you know, Don was at the stoplight, which was, you know, the, the house away when, when the other car <laughs> pulled in. So, yeah, it was, that was the closest to a confrontation of any sort of like that that I'd ever experienced. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I can't say I've ever been in that situation before. I have had where my partner, I'll come home with two or three other people, and, and my partner was there. and was like, oh, okay, you guys have fun. <laughs> I'm going to play this video game now. <laughs> But that, that's pretty much it. I, I've always tried to be, I'm just a bad liar. I just can't do it. So I just don't. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that's the only time I've ever done anything like that. Well, I did want to ask you, because I know you've had two long-term marriages or partners uh, in the past. And your first partner, you did lose to complications with AIDS or HIV. Is that correct? Well, I've had more than than two, but yeah, the the okay. the, the first one uh, was fairly short, uh, short term, long term. Second one was about two years. Uh, the third one was the one that lasted almost six. And yes, he passed away from complications due to AIDS, and I was there with him when he passed. He passed August fourth, nineteen ninety five. Yeah. I was holding his hand when he when he went, and uh, you know, there at the house in Guerneville. What was it like when you found out that like yet another friend or someone close to you, and especially your partner, it comes back positive? Well, I I knew that my partner uh, that John was positive when we got back together. You know, when, mm -hmm. when I met him in the bar, and we went out on our first date, we we talked about it, and I'd never been tested at that point. I just assumed because I, I was, as I like to say, popular, that at some point I had probably been exposed. But he convinced me to go ahead and get tested, and to my surprise, I was negative. But from the time we found out you know, how it could be transmitted and how to keep it from being transmitted by using condoms, I was using condoms all the time. So you know, the chances were that if I had gotten it, I had gotten it before I met John, but like I said, I'm negative still, and Roger's negative, so we were lucky. Yeah. So, and you don't have to answer any of these questions if they're too personal. Um, and of course, um, I can edit around this, but when you found out that he was positive and that you were negative and you decided to go ahead and, and be a couple still, was there in the back of your mind, like that voice saying like, well, this is this has an expiration date on it, like your relationship, yeah. because of the fact that he was positive? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew at the time it was pretty much a death sentence. But like I said, we'd, we'd met earlier. We'd met uh, six 
or seven years earlier. And I mean, I was like, this is the man I want to be with way back then. So, you know, the, the fact that I had this opportunity to be, to be with him, it was, yeah, you know, we may not have, you know, 20 or 30 years together or 40 or 50, whatever, but we'll have the time that we do have together. And to me, that was more important. And how long were you guys together? Almost six years. We'd met at the end of August in 89, and he passed early August 95. You know, it's it's so interesting because I, I talked to several men your age before who have had partners or, or friends pass from HIV and or AIDS, rather. And I just, I think back, like, I, I, I think about the fact that, like, as scary as HIV can be, we'll never know what it what it's like to have lost friends like that. You know, today, if, if, if I were to become positive, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Like I would probably freak out, obviously, for like the first day or two. But then I'd come to my senses and realize, you know, this is not a death sentence. But back then it really was. And I don't know if our generation can ever know what it was like to experience that. Well, that was the thing. He was under the impression that you know, there were advances being made, and he thought he would probably live long enough for them to have either a cure or some sort of mm-hmm. way to um, treat it. Treat it, yeah. Um, he, like I said, he passed in August. The, what they call the cocktail came out in September of that year. Wow. So was he using AZT? Uh, yeah, he used AZT, and uh, he, they had. Again, cyclovir and a couple of other drugs he was taking to try to, you know, ward this off. Um, now, you know, so a, a lot of our listeners are probably in the millennial generation and might not know what AZT was. Do you know enough about it to kind of talk a little bit about what AZT was and what it did? It was horrid. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it uh, was basically a, what they call a... Uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitor. So it tried to undo what AIDS itself was doing as far as uh, what happens is that the AIDS virus attaches it to itself to a cell. It dumps its RNA into a cell and basically turns a human cell into a virus reproduction unit. And then viruses you know, are created inside the cell. They explode out and then go on to infect other cells. So it, it has some really bad side effects, among them things like um, uh, liver problems. Uh, Roger, uh, John came down with pancreatitis at one point, about a month before he, he passed, which can be extremely painful. Mm-hmm. Some of the drugs would make your skin turn kind of purplish, and... A lot of people just couldn't tolerate it very well. It, it it did a number on several organs. So even if they had survived the HIV, they may have died from something like liver failure or kidney failure. And one of the side effects of HIV was that it could attack the cells that surround, not the nerve cells themselves, but the, the little strings that go off to talk to other nerve cells. It's sort of like insulation on a wire. Mm-hmm. So when that's destroyed, then these nerve cells can touch and um, get signals crossed. And sometimes people would actually die from that because 
your nerves are also what controls things like your heart and your breathing. Wow. Well, it sounds, um, it sounds like, you know, as much as they were trying to help it, it really did a lot of damage to people. It, it did extend many people's lifetimes and, you know, some enough so that when better drugs came out, people could switch over. I have friends that have been HIV positive since the early 80s. Not a lot of them, but a few of them. Mm-hmm. And they're now on things like Truvada or, you know, one of the other newer drugs that they can live fairly normal lives and not really, you know, have much of any side effects. Um, now, I I wonder if this is a myth or not, but I have heard of maybe early 2000s, late 90s of, what did they call it? I think they come catchers. Oh, oh uh, bug chasers. Uh-huh. Bug chasers. Yeah. Is that a real thing or is that a myth? It was. It was quite the real thing. Um, I know one former contestant from the drummer days. Actually, I think he was one of the leather boys instead of being a, a drummer boy. But uh, he was touting, you know, publicly that he was trying to make sure people didn't become positive, and yet his profile showed up on some bug chaser sites that he was looking to get infected. So some of our listeners might not understand what a bug chaser is. Could you maybe describe that a little bit? Bug chaser was someone who was actively looking to become infected with HIV. And why? What what would the reasoning be behind that? I, I don't know all the reasons why somebody would do that, but I do know being someone who is HIV negative, if I would go out, some guys would ask you, are you positive or negative? Because they'd been tested. Mm-hmm. And if you were negative and they were positive, they would say, I don't want to date you. I don't want to risk you getting infected. Uh, which was you know, sort of the, the other side of the coin from those who were negative who would ask, are you positive or negative? And somebody was positive, they'd say, I don't want to date you because I don't want to risk getting positive. Um, but there were people who were who were negative, who um, decided, you know, I might as well get it over with and get get HIV. Then I then I've got this you know larger pool of people that I can now date. So in their mind, they they were thinking, well, it's probably going to happen anyways or I already have it and I don't know it, I might as well just let it happen. Yeah, because then I, you know, I don't have to worry about using a condom anymore and uh, I can have you know, unprotected sex because the worst that's going to happen to me in the near term is going to be that I might get a venereal disease that can be taken care of. Right. Now, there was another possibility, and that is that by that point, some insurance companies were offering, or or I don't know if it's insurance companies, but some companies were offering to buy out insurance policies. So if, say, I had a million-dollar life insurance policy and I was HIV positive, I had turned HIV positive, I could contact one of these companies and say, you know, I've got this insurance policy. I'd like to sell it to you folks. You give me the cash and you'll get you know, a certain amount of cash, and then you take care of the payments, and at the end, you know, when I die in five to ten years, uh, you get the rest of it. Mm. Uh, and you know, at the time, the, if you 
start exhibiting symptoms of HIV, you generally had anywhere from a year to five years of life. So financially, this was like a win-win for both of you. Well, or if, both if parties, one, rather. Yeah, yeah, for both parties. Uh, so some guys, I think, may have looked at it that way. You know, oh, I can, I can get some cash. I can buy a home. I can have a great time. I can go, you know, fuck who, pretty much whoever I want. And, you know, I'm going to die anyway. So what the hell? Yeah, live hard, live fast, you know, in that next year or whatever you have. Wow. What a different time. I mean, I, I don't know if that was a thinking very many, but that was certainly a possibility. Right, right. Yeah, what a different time we live in today. I don't think any of us will ever know the, the understand fully, like the fear or the, the whole dynamic of, of the HIV crisis, the, the way that, you know, your generation had to. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I consider myself extremely lucky on two counts. One is that I'm negative, and two is that my husband is also negative. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we, we both we certainly weren't virgins by any means. Uh, so to find out, you know, that, that we were both negative was, was a pleasant surprise. Right, right. Well, you're, you, you have a current partner now, right? Right. And um, that's what I'm saying. Is right. It, is, my, is, is the man who's my husband, or as I call him, my husband, mm. uh, is negative. So, you know, we don't have to worry about the condom thing. How long have you two been together now? Uh, over 17 years. Wow. But, you know, since I'm married and I am really pretty unusual in the community and that I'm in a monogamous relationship. Yes. And that's another thing that is very unique about you is, um, <clears throat> at least from my experience, you know, there are other people, for example, you know, we had Chad Onyx on the show and he himself prefers to be in a monogamous relationship as well. And I find that more and more apparently, like more and more apparent, um, I don't know if this is a current generation thing or if this has always been this way. But a lot of leather people that I've met are usually very adamant about not having a monogamous relationship. Yeah, I, I know quite a few. And, you know, some of them are extremely good friends. As a matter of fact, one that's a very outspoken non-monogamy advocate was my best man at our wedding. You know, it, it doesn't mean we, we can't agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like, well, you know, that's fine for you and what's me being monogamous uh, works for me and works for my partner. You not being works for you and, and with your partners. And I'm happy for you and I hope you're happy for me. Well, I, <clears throat> I did want to dive into a, a little bit about that because um, I, was, I was having not, I guess, not a debate or argument, but a discussion with, you know, a couple of my friends about monogamy and being a kinkster, if you will. And, you know, a, a couple people said, you know, well, you can't really be monogamous and be and explore all of these fetishes because you're kind of held to the to go at the same speed, you know, as your partner is willing to go. And I thought, okay, well, maybe some of that's true, but what if the partner that you have is someone that's very open to exploring all of these things with you, you know? And I guess it kind of goes on a case-by-case -case basis, but what has been your experience with that? Um, you know, I think that one of the things that we did when we first got together was that we sat down and talked about 
what we wanted mm -hmm. and what we didn't want. And we, you know, we were both looking for a long-term relationship. We were looking for the, the sort of relationship that we ended up having. We talked about monogamy. We talked about what we would consider monogamy and what we wouldn't. Because monogamy is not just a black and white thing. It, there's some grayscale in there. So, you know, is kissing somebody else other than your partner okay or not? Is getting a blowjob, is that, you know, considered non-monogamy? Is anal sex considered non-monogamy? We talked about all these things and decided what was okay and what wasn't. So, and that's worked for us pretty much unchanged since the beginning. So it's really defining those lines of what it means. Yeah. Now, I know you said it kind of went unchanged, but, you know, I, I guess I have to ask it, have any of those aspects changed? I mean, you know, at the beginning, was it not okay for you to make out with somebody at the bar or, and now it is, you know, like little things like that? Um, no, it really hasn't. We, we had one experience with somebody, uh, another leather title holder who we were going to a contest in a different city. And they said, oh, you should stay with us. And we thought, great, you know, they can do the same when they come visit us. And we do a lot of that, by the way. You know, somebody from out of town may come in and, and say, well, you know, we're, we're going to be doing this contest or we're involved in the contest or something like that. And, and, you know, could we stay with you? And we're always happy to do that because, among other things, it means we've got somebody to hang out with. Mm -hmm. And we you know, then we can reciprocate later and say, oh, you know, maybe we want to go to a different city. You know, we happen to know somebody who lives in that city, and um, you know, therefore we can we can stay with them. They, you know, whoever stays with us gets the benefit of our knowledge of the city. So you know, they're not going off trying to find something to eat and end up someplace dreadful or homophobic or right. anything else. So we sort of expect the same back. Uh, but anyway, we, we went to something that was in a different city. We're staying with these folks. And we were in the midst of having sex, my husband and me. We weren't married at the time. Uh, when the host opens the door, comes in, and decides to join us. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, it, it puts you in a really awkward position because on the one hand, they've been gracious enough to put you up. On the other hand, you know, this is not something that you would have invited. Right. So, yeah, it was, it was extremely awkward for the two of us to have this person try to join in. Now, did they understand your dynamic as a monogamous couple, or did they just kind of assume that you were... I think they just assumed, yeah. I mean, it, like I said, we're, we're sort of viewed as being a bit of an out, outcast couple in a way because of our stance about that. But, you know, like I said, it was, it was a little uh, awkward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, that makes me wonder, ha have you had like an outsider come into your sexual relationship for like a one-time thing? We, we did one time really early on. Mm -hmm. And it, it was somebody I knew from quite some time ago now uh, who it was going to be his birthday. And Roger and I just sort of started dating at that point. So we hadn't really finalized everything. Got it. Did you guys enjoy that? It was a little weird. I mean, it wasn't. Extremely weird, but it was a little weird. So that's kind of when it's like, okay, this all isn't really working. Let's sit down and talk about what's okay and what isn't from now on. 
Right, right. It's so funny because like you, I always hear, you know, the go-to thing in the leather scene is like, oh, like humans were not made to be monogamous, but I think some humans were made to be monogamous. It might be, you know, similar to having a sexual orientation. Like some people are just geared towards it and other people aren't. Well, I think that we have a big gray area. You know, like I was saying about mm-hmm. monogamy itself. There's, you know, some people would see us out at a bar, maybe either or both of us kissing somebody else. You know, I thought you were monogamous. It's like, well, yeah, we are. We don't. We won't be going home with them. Don't worry. Oh, but, I see. So it's those definitions that you have to do with your partner is always okay. What isn't? You know, we don't get get blowjobs in the bar or, or fuck anybody in the bar. Uh, although I've certainly seen it happen in some bars. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we don't do that. Uh, kissing's okay. Uh, back massages are okay. So you're talking about like making out kissing yeah. or like yeah. just kissing? Yeah. Uh, with the clear understanding, that's as far as it goes. And what about groping? Like if you're kissing and groping? Oh, that. <laughs> I'm a fucking title holder. I get groped all the time. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've seen some of my pictures. Like, oh, yeah, I can. Uh, there was one, actually, when we were out house hunting, we found a, a cute little place that we wanted to look at uh, and went in, and the real estate agent uh, was, was a cute young man. And we're talking with him. And I noticed he's not looking me in the eye, he's staring at my crotch. Uh, and I stopped and I said, My eyes are up here. And he turned bright red. And he finally said, can I touch it? And I said, and Roger says, sure, everybody else does. <laughs> that is so sexy. <laughs> so, you know, he got a quick little group and, and uh, it turns out that he knew someone who I had known from my year as Mr. Drummer, who has now moved to Palm Springs from. And so he managed to get the two of us connected together again. Yeah. Well, I was speaking about sex before we before we start to wrap it up here, because I think we've been talking for like two hours almost or like an hour and a half at least. Um, I I, I want to know. Uh, well, if I could, I would I would put together like a, a little comedy show called Kinks Gone Wrong. Um, have you had any embarrassing or funny stories related to kink or fetish? Yes. So I told you about the young man that showed up in his car just as the other boyfriend was leaving. Uh-huh. Well, it wasn't that night, but I did see him several times. And uh, I'm like I said, I'm still friends with him. But one night we were, uh, we were playing, and I had part of my hand in his ass, and we had an earthquake. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, the mirror started rattling. And, you know, things were rattling on the on the nightstand. And <clears throat> it was, again, it was a little scary, but kind of fascinating, kind of fun at the same time. And uh, so I still occasionally, you know, kid him about, has anybody else made the earth move for you? <laughs> that is so funny. I, I don't know if you remember that, uh, you know, in California, we had like some pretty big earthquakes, like... Uh, I think it was out in like Ridgecrest or something, but like in LA, like we really felt it. And uh, I remember there were like aftershocks the rest of that day. And I was like jerking off and I'm like, oh, I swear to God, if I have to leave the house during this earthquake, <laughs> oh, <laughs> how embarrassing would that be? <laughs> Just put on a robe and walk out. That's all. 
Right, right, exactly. Well, I mean, you would have had to take your fist out of someone's ass. Yeah, well, it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I together or something, but I think we're okay. Uh, well, Ron, before we go, as a title holder of multiple titles and someone who's fairly experienced in the whole leather culture, uh, what would be your advice to someone just coming into it? Maybe let's say someone, you know, 19 or 20 years old who's wanting to explore this more. I would say that uh, find a group that is uh, doing education it's, is a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. you, you know, that's, that's one of those things that I think is good about having lived in San Francisco. We had, had the Leatherman discussion group and um, guest speakers who would come and talk with us about their fetishes or their kinks. And they were really willing to talk with people one-on-one -on -one or even within the group later on. Mm -hmm. We were also lucky in San Francisco that we had a mentorship program that Richard led, where he, he, we would pair up people with experience in certain things with people who were newbies, mm -hmm. who wanted to learn about, you know, teach me about bondage or teach me about whips or teach me about breath control and try to match them up with someone who had a lot of experience with those things so that they could, you know, learn how it's done properly and safely and and yet still have a great time. I, I think that's probably the best thing is, is a, a mentorship program. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know there is a, a title holder here in Southern California who is um, thinking about opening up a mentorship program similar to uh, Richard. So if that ever gets off the ground, I'll make sure to put um, information about that on the podcast as well. Thank you so much, Rod, for coming on the show. And uh, how can we reach out to you if we want to? Well, I am on Facebook. I, I'm friends with you. So if they are friends with you already, um, they can connect with me that way. You can probably look for me uh, just by Rod Wood or look for No Cal Mr. Drummer 2000. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show again, and I we'll hope to see you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Have a great day. Before we go, I'd like to remind all of you that in the midst of COVID-19, there are several organizations in the Los Angeles leather community that are here to help. The LELC Cares, Boulevard Pantry, and LA Leather COVID-19 Assist. If you or anyone you know is in need of assistance, please reach out. I will have links in the description below. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Facebook as Brandon Bullet. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky. Okay.